You're listening to the AdCast, the podcast for marketers and advertisers with your host, Eric Elliott. All right, everyone, welcome to the AdCast. I have a special guest online with me today. It's Mr. Cora <laughs> Davis from the Creators Law Firm. Uh, she has something really interesting today, and what we want to talk about is your rights, your trademark rights, your copyrights, and she is an expert at that. And I want to go ahead and introduce her. And to Cora, I want you to tell our listeners and our viewers a little bit about you and your firm. Sure, I'm happy to. First, thank you so much for inviting me on as a guest. I'm really excited to be here today. Awesome. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with me, I am Takora Davis. I'm the founder uh, and lead attorney of The Creators Law Firm. We are a boutique intellectual property and business law firm, and we serve advanced creative entrepreneurs. We offer subscription legal services and on-demand legal projects. And then I also have a second business called Business Bakery. And so that is really where you can get contract templates and resources and training to help you if you are just starting out in business and you need to have a strong place to go to get some solid information. Wow. She's a busy lady. And as you can tell, she has no time for sleep with all the businesses and things that she's doing right now. So I want to kind of jump in because we've had some some lawyers and some big law firms, medium-sized law firms come on here. and, And you mentioned the word boutique. But the one thing I want people to understand is just because it says boutique doesn't mean you can't do big things, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's absolutely correct. I have some uh, clients who really want more personalized service. So I'm the only attorney in my firm. Of course, I have support staff and contractors that are help moving the needle. But I do have clients who are, you know, they have their products in Target and CVS and other people have spoke on national stages. So some people just really want that intimacy with their legal counselor. Um, So that's why a lot of people do come to me. Right. So, so now, you know, this is very interesting to us because we have an advertising agency and we also have a creative agency where, where we make uh, creative designs and trademarks for people. And, and this was, you know, when we, you and I found one another on Instagram, this was one of the things I was like, this is a hot topic, um, particularly because we've went through this before with people where they feel as if you're almost like a, a work for hire, like when you work for them, they own everything that you do for them, right? I mean, do you run across that right. a lot? Right, and that's people? not true. So, so tell me, tell um, me, tell me, tell me a little bit about that, and 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 how that situations come up before you, and and let's talk to some of the marketers and advertisers about who owns the work. Right. Okay. So, by law, according to the Copyright Act, the owner of the creative work, so that could be a logo or some sort of literary or artistic work that's created, is the actual creator. That is the general rule. Of course, there are exceptions to that rule, and the exception are, hey, if you're an employee of, mm-hmm. a, of a bigger company, then, of course, the employer is going to own the intellectual property. The other exception is if you entered into a contractual agreement with the person who hired you, and there is a clause within that agreement that essentially states, upon the completion of whatever you've been hired to do, that could be creating that logo or maybe creating graphics or illustrations for a children's book, that the copyright then transfers to the person who hired you. 
Wow. Another another thing is that you you as the creator, like you as the person who created it, has to sign the contract. If your signature is not there and there's been no clause talking about that assignment, that excuse me, the transfer of intellectual property, then you are the owner. Even if they did hire you to create the logo, then uh, it doesn't mean that that's automatic, that it's theirs. I think people uh, forget mm. that there's two things involved in the contract. First is the service, and that is you actually performing the work to create the logo. Mm -hmm. The second aspect is the actual transfer of the intellectual property rights. We're speaking about two completely different things here, but people like to lump them all in together. And it's kind of, it kind of makes sense. Like, Think about the photographers who take pictures of you, your, you and your kids or your dog, you know, for your right. holiday photos. Right. You're thinking, well, it's a picture of me, so I should own the picture. Actually, no, it's the photographer's work. The photographer is the one who owns the rights to the picture. You may have a license wow. to use it for personal use. So I think people have to be very careful, but, you know, also respect the rights of creatives because let's put ourselves in the shoes of the photographer or the illustrator or the designer. Mm -hmm. You are making, how you make money is by performing that service. But if somebody takes that logo and they put it on a t-shirt and then they sell a million dollars worth of that shirt, you may not get any money from that, right? right? So right. how are you able to make, you know, get royalties or license that stuff? So there's so many different nuances here. And so I think just as a culture, um, we need to understand what intellectual property is because oftentimes it is the most valuable business asset you own, but wow. I find that it is the least protected. Wow. I mean, you're blowing my mind right now. You're blowing <laughs> my mind. I think we're going to have to go back and look at all of our contracts now to see about our work. So now one of the things I want to ask you, you talked about like the logo design. What if it's not a logo design? What if it's a slogan? Well, you know, here's the thing about that. The, let's say, for instance, uh, my slogan is we help you protect your smarts and it is a registered trademark. Right. right. But if I got someone to create the design of the logo, I still own the words. I own the words. We help you protect your smarts. But maybe the way that they stylized it, you know, in terms of like the design, they technically would own the design. They don't own my trademark. So there's a distinction here. So even like with my law firm, the logo, the it's really beautiful. It's um, it was created by Sophie Taylor of Castlefield Design, mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting. She does a lot of wedding design, but I wanted my law firm logo to look different than you know the standard stuff with Lady right. Justice and the scales and things right. like that. Well, Sco Sophie, her service was to create the logo, but if I want the intellectual property rights, you know, I have to pay for that. It's pretty hefty. So I was like, I'm good with not owning the logo itself. I still own my firm name. It's still trademarked, but I may not want to actually trademark my logo. Some people start out with logos and then what they change the logo in the next year or two. What's the point in trademarking that? Right. <laughs> You're going to change it in a year or two. And it takes about 12 to 18 months to get a trademark anyway. So before we pursue trademark rights, we have to really make sure that the brand collateral we want to protect is something mm -hmm. that we really love and we see longevity, you know, within our organizations. So what if you, let's just say the uh, Sophie who designed your logo, you know, just hypothetical, and I hate using hypotheticals, but what if you and the designer got into a dispute and you're still using the logo and she's like, well, that's my work. You can't use it anymore. So how does that work? Well, that would not be good for her. Right. Um, <laughs> one, because I hired her 
to design a logo for my business. So I'm still well within my rights of using it for a commercial purpose, which means to promote my business. It. it also will come down to what's in the contract. If she's saying, hey, you have to get my permission to put your logo on a T-shirt and if you're going to sell it, then that would be something that you would look within the body of agreement and just make sure like, if you know that the purpose of getting someone to perform a creative service for you is for you to then put it on t-shirts or use it for a commercial purpose, that that is clearly outlined within the, the contract. Otherwise, you know, you will get into some of those things. I find that a lot of designers, they understand they're creating things, you know, they don't care really what you do. And then you have some other people who may be a little bit more advanced and they say, okay, no, this is how things work with me. So you have to really understand how the designer works and also ask these questions when you're talking with them and making sure like, is this a person I really want to work with? Are they going to exercise right. too much creative control over what I do uh, with the work that I've asked them to do? And that's a great point. That's a great point. You talked about people who may be advanced versus some others, right? Let's you know, someone who's opening a, a one location flower shop, they may not be so concerned with the brand being nationally. But a, right. a national company, they may be a little more buttoned up. Um, but then you don't want to say to the designer, you're hard to work with or you have too many restrictions on me being able to use that logo. So does it make sense for even that smaller person to protect themselves like the big, larger corporations? Does that make sense for them? Yes, definitely. And the reason why I say that is many times when we start businesses, we have no idea how fast it's going to catch one. You could really be within the national eye and landscape overnight. Mm -hmm. And so I think we always have to make sure that we're positioning ourselves and playing the long game. You know, and here's the thing. This is what happened with, um, I believe, Burger King. There was an original Burger King location. I feel like it was like in Alabama or someplace like that. And then the other Burger King started the one that's, you know, on every single street corner. Mm -hmm. And they began to expand. Mm -hmm. And so they, they franchise went national. And so even though the original Burger King did not have any federal trademark rights and they had well, excuse me, the original Burger King had superior rights. They started to use the words Burger King in connection with restaurant services first because they failed to protect their intellectual property and file a federal trademark. They basically were squeezed out by the larger Burger King and they were told, hey, you cannot expand outside of this geographic location. So that's wow. the power of a federal trademark. Even if you haven't gotten to that point yet, you will be able to still have full ownership rights over your name. People assume that, hey, I started using this business name before this person. So that is just the end all be all. Generally, that works. But if you are only operating your business within this one town, then and this other company is expanding and moving, then if you don't have a federal trademark, you really have limited trademark rights that are really relegated to the geographic location you're in not even in your wow. state so that our mark so you know if you get a trademark and this bigger company comes along they may approach you and say hey we would love to either purchase the trademark from you or maybe a licensing agreement. And so when we talk about licensing, we always hear it on Shark Tank, right? That's why Damon Johns and uh, Mr. Wonderful, they're always like, oh let's license it, right? Because that's recurring revenue that can be made. And so you can sit there and license your intellectual property to someone else for them to use. Right. And really, this is what a license is. A license is me saying, you can use my stuff for this limited time and for this limited purpose. That's all it is. I'm not giving you all of my intellectual property rights. 
I'm just saying that you can use my business name or tagline or whatever it is for this uh, maybe a year, two years, and you need to pay me this money monthly or annually. And then I could wow. revoke it if you violate the agreement or at the end of the term. So that's why licensing is so appealing to those guys, because it's like, wow, we can get recurring revenue. Somebody else can do the hard work <laughs> and they're paying wow. me money to use my intellectual property. So this is I see this. Um, have you ever seen some coaches? And then they're like, I'm on the Forbes Coaches Council. Right. Mm -hmm. Or and they get to use the Forbes logo on their website. Yeah, I have a buddy who writes for Forbes. Right. So that communicates in the mind of a potential client that, oh, you're connected with Forbes. Yeah. There's some sort of prestige or some sort of training that you received and it makes me trust you more. Those people are probably paying an annual fee to Forbes to be able to use their name for that specific purpose on their website. And of course, if they want to be on the coaching, I'm assuming I haven't read the agreement, but I'm assuming because it only makes sense that it's probably something that's either annual or biannual where they have to continue to pay a fee to Forbes to use that. So that's how Forbes probably has another revenue stream within their business. Wow. So this is going to be a great podcast. I, I can tell already. <laughs> so what I want to do is I want to give these people an opportunity to go get some popcorn to, to come back and we will get right back in. And I want to pick up where we left off and we we're talking about Burger King. And then I want to ask about McDonald's. All right. So we're going to go to break. You don't need a marketing agency. You do deserve very important placement. VIP Marketing and Advertising is a cutting-edge strategic digital, creative, media, and marketing partner that provides services for businesses of all sizes. To stay up to date on the latest marketing news, subscribe for email updates at veryimportantplacement.com. You're listening to The Adcast, the podcast for marketers and advertisers. Hey, welcome back to The Adcast. We're back from break. And if you missed that first half, boy, you need to hit the rewind button, I'm telling you, because she was on fire. And so a lot of businesses and a lot of marketers out there, you're learning right now that you have to protect your work and protect your intellectual property, right? So I'm on a line with Mr. Cora from the Creators Law Firm. Uh, Mr. Cora, you, you brought up uh, Burger King and how this other corporation came in and kind of squeezed them out uh, in simplest terms. But now I want to bring up a movie that uh, I hopefully you're familiar with called The Founder with Michael Keaton. And in that movie, you know, you know, I've I've gone to McDonald's tons of times, taken the kids there before, but I never knew the history of McDonald's and how it started, and and I heard about it inside of a book, and that's what really prompted me to watch the movie. But it almost seems like their work, the McDonald's brothers, the true McDonald's, their life work, their ideas, their intellectual properties, all of it was taken from them. Um, by Ray Kroc and what we see now, the Ronald McDonald, the Grimace and everything else and all the other restaurants, those are Ray Kroc. That's not from the McDonald's brothers. So can you tell me a little bit about like what kind of happened uh, and, and how that kind of you can be done today even? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's a great movie, The Founder, and I really love it. One of the most prolific scenes in The Founder is in the end, and I don't know if you remember this, but it was during the negotiations where Ray was in the bathroom and he's washing his hands and one of the McDonald's brothers like turns and he looks at him and he's like, why us? Like, you know, I just want to know why you did this to us. And he was like, you guys don't even realize the special thing that you had, do you? And he's like, no, tell me. Well, and he goes, it's the name. He was like, it's your name. He said, McDonald's. He said, wow. it's so American. He said, it could be anything. And it immediately signified trust. And the brother said to him, you'll never have our name. And he said, you want to be sure about that? And he walked out. So what Ray ended up doing, one of the things he did, it was a real estate play really with McDonald's that he was going about and doing the franchising and whatnot. And he really saw what could really it could be. But within that contractual agreement, Ray had the ability to use that particular name, the McDonald's, McDonald's, even though that was the brother's surname, because he had already began to expand. They they made several mistakes, one of which they gave up entirely too much control. They gave up so much control to Ray and allowed him to really, you know, make a play and they weren't really involved that it really spiraled out of control and they couldn't get back a hold of it. So they were actually, they gave up too much control Mm -hmm. and they were entirely too trusting of him. And because they were too trusting and they were passive, this is what happened. They allowed themselves to kind of get steamrolled. And finally, they did not, there's no way they could have understood the power of the intellectual property that they had, meaning in their name. And we saw that in the bathroom scene. They didn't even realize what they had. And most of the time, what I find with entrepreneurs is they want to start protecting their smarts when somebody else wants it. When someone else wants what you have, all of a sudden you begin to see the value in it. Everybody's like, oh, I got plenty of time to get a trademark. I got plenty of time to talk to an attorney. But then most people who contact me at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, they're saying, it's hitting the someone, fan. Else, someone else just started an Instagram page that has the same name as me. Um, can, can, what can I do about it? Um, somebody else started a business and they're in my same town. What can I do about it? And it's like, you've been in business for a year, for six months or two years, and now you're afraid that someone else wants to take what you have. And so I feel like that same spirit was operating within the Kroc brothers because they really didn't understand the power of the intellectual property that they had. And so there's no way that they had really strong legal counsel who advised them about what they were giving up or what they were doing. They were just entirely too trusting of him. And so what ended up happening was they lost control of their company And like the Burger King, it's actually Burger King. It was like in Illinois. That was the original location. They also could only, uh, they had their original location, but they couldn't expand beyond the borders of that original location, right? And so it's unfortunate what happened there. I really think another movie that is, you know, because the founder, entrepreneurs, it's it's almost like when I went to law school and they were like, you got to watch The Paper Chase and lawyers will understand that. I feel like The Founder is that movie that people tell entrepreneurs to watch. Like, yo, you got to go watch The Founder. But I think another really good movie that we should watch is Joy. And that is the movie uh, with Jennifer Lawrence who plays in it. And essentially, if you haven't watched it, Joy is about how Joy Mangano, she um, is a Jersey girl, I believe. She created a self-ringing mop. And I remember as a little girl, my mother having this mop and it was sold on like the home shopping network. Mm -hmm. And so Joy knew, okay, hey, I have this mop. She submitted a patent, but she got 
you know, this patent attorney who who she trusted from like a friend of her mother basically said, hey, looks like this is a similar mop as someone else. And so what Joy ended up doing was she thought she had the same mop as someone in China. So she began to pay royalties to these guys in Texas. And towards the end of the movie, they said, listen, she's like, I took out a second mortgage on my house. You know, we're selling mops, but every single time I sell a mop, I have to give these guys a couple of like one or two dollars. I'm not going to be able to make a profit. And so in the end, they were basically trying to take her business and she felt like, wow. gosh, I, I don't have anything else to do. What Joy did, and even in the face of that, her parents were saying, give it up, Joy, it's over. Mm -hmm. She locked herself in the room. She read through her patent. And she compared her patent application with these other guys' patent application. And she ended up confronting the Texas businessman because she then realized, one, there were no similarities within her mop and the other person's mop. In fact, those people had never even started to sell their mop. And finally, she was paying royalties to these businessmen in Texas. And they weren't even giving money, that money to the person in China, the mm -hmm. people in China had never heard about them. So what I love about what Joy did was she sat there. She, she of course was not a lawyer, but she really took the time to say, let me figure out, I know my invention better than Common anybody sense. else. And she compared it with someone else. So she took back control. Then she went back and then she, she basically went to him and said, it seems like we have a case of fraud and misrepresentation, you know? Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's grounds for a lawsuit because you've been getting blood money from me and so not only did she get her money back but he gave her fifty thousand dollars on top of that so she paid wow. 50 he returned that and gave her another 50 right so she went in there and she basically bossed up <laughs> and she <laughs> told him like look this is my stuff you're gonna pay it back to me and that's that and so she walked out at the end of the movie it was beautiful she walked out snow was falling on her face and like she got her company back and I love how that juxtap the juxtaposition of what happened with the McDonald's brothers. And unfortunately, it seemed like, you know, they, they got, yeah, you know, some money or whatnot, but they really lost control of a billion dollar company. Oh, man. As opposed to Joy, she went back in there. She took control. And now we see Joy's products in the container store, in grocery stores. You know, she has over 100 patents. You know, uh, because of what she decided to do that day. Wow. And I love, I think that entrepreneurs need to watch that movie because she really stopped. She really, she knew the value of her intellectual property, specifically her patent. And she made sure that she took back control of her company. And I love that that, you know, the founders, it makes you really scared, but I feel like joy will empower you. But also, like, another scene, you talked about a scene in The Founder that stuck out to you, like the restroom scene, but there was another one, if I can recall, they were at the table, and the guy was like, you know, do you have it in writing? And they only had handshakes. Yeah, oh, that handshake deal got them, because he was supposed to pay, I think, a 1% royalty off of every sale of either restaurants or something like that, and because it was a handshake deal, it was not put into a contract. Ray Kroc never honored that agreement. So again, the brothers, because they were too trusting and they didn't have the proper counsel, and it really is common sense. If you're going to get a 1% royalty, make sure that's within the body of the agreement. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't put in there, they lost out on so much money. So, so much money. So 100%. like, you know, I guess, you know, what you're saying too is, 
when people are in business, you want to protect your intellectual property through and through. And also make sure you got it in writing because the handshake deal just won't hold up in court, right? I mean, you know, no, not really. And here's the thing, like, there are certain things, like, within the law that cannot be an oral contract. So, um, for example, you cannot say, I'm going to sell you my house uh, with an oral or handshake agreement. Mm -hmm. That must be in writing. There are certain types of contracts that have to be in writing, like, even for some that are over the amount of, like, $1,000, and it'll take more than a year. Um, It's like this um, commercial commercial agreements, then that has to be also in writing as well. It is that that's one of the reasons why I created Business Bakery. I have a signature program through there. And for entrepreneurs who can just they can't afford to work with me and hire me exclusively. What I've done is I've created this step by step program that takes you through, okay, here's how you, you know, um, identify which business that you want to pursue and it's going to be the most profitable here is how you create a breadwinning business name that's going to be very strong and has the highest likelihood of being able to be trademarked here is how you can diy your own trademark and copyright applications mm-hmm. also here is a, a body of contract templates a growing library of contract templates that you mm. can pull from when you need them and also how can you defend your intellectual property because undoubtedly someone may take you know an instagram graphic and then repurpose it that it was actually yours how can you wow. get that removed from instagram so there are certain things that we all should know as creatives how to do ourselves um especially if you just don't have you know it's 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 like you know a shoestring budget but if you can have legal resources and a body, like a growing library of contract templates that you can pull from that says, okay, I've got a new client. Here's my client services agreement. Oh, gosh, I've been asked to be a guest speaker. Here's my guest speaker agreement. Oh, I, I want to have a retreat. Let me make sure that I get my retreat agreement, right? Wow. Um, wow. I want to hire I want to hire a contractor. Here's an independent contractor agreement. You know, a lot of people will go to different websites and they gather all these different templates or they get one from their friend and they put one them together. Google, they Google one. Yeah. And- it, it's a we call it a Frankenstein agreement, right? Because it's like wow. you take pieces from here and I like, like that it's term. Live. <laughs> I <laughs> like that live, term, right? It doesn't mean it's legally binding, right? So if we can understand, you know, and build a strong legal foundation for our businesses, it's going to make you have a more profitable business. It's also going to allow you to capitalize on opportunities that come your way. Most of what happens also is that I found people were coming to me again, emailing me. I've got this big client. I don't have a contract or the contract that I have. I'm not comfortable sending. Do you have something? Right. And I'm like, it's 11 at night. I'm asleep, you know, and they're like, I have to meet with them tomorrow morning. Right. There was always this this urgency that was allowed because we always put legal on the back burner. But ultimately, what we have to do is make sure that we're incorporating that into like a central cornerstone of our business building, because otherwise we're going to miss out on opportunities and then we'll be vulnerable. And I think that that's the part where I realized there's a need in a marketplace for something like this Mm -hmm. that is comprehensive. You can go and search for contract templates. Other attorneys sell them. But I didn't see a comprehensive program that taught you that really that showed you how to utilize these contracts and negotiate them mm-hmm. um, within your business. And so I really think we have to make sure that we incorporate those things in here, making sure that we're building this. These are our legacies. Many of like myself, I was discriminated against even as a lawyer after having my first child. My son was four or five weeks old and the supervising attorney told me, I think you need to get home and, and focus on healing and get over your pregnancy brain. 
And he said to me on the telephone, he said, you know, I don't think you will have what it takes to be committed to the success of this firm because I had a child. Now, some people say, well, did you sue him? No, I was broke. (laughs) I didn't have the money to hire a lawyer myself. And I also had just had a kid. I was not focused on trying to sue anybody. And I knew it was my word against his. So the best thing that I could do was to start my own firm and have a safe place for people to come and know that, okay, I too have really was pushed into entrepreneurship for whatever reason that may be. And you understand what they're going through. Yeah. And I want to create a better life for my family. And so, um, but many times, I think there's a stat that says about 8% of founders find themselves in some sort of legal issue. A lot of that will deal with contractual disputes. Um, Another thing will be, you know, intellectual property lawsuits. So how can we minimize that? And what type of support systems can we put in place? Because I realized as an attorney, I felt like I was creating this dichotomy of the haves and have nots. The people who have can afford to work with an attorney. The people who have not, you're just on your own and you can go ask these legal questions in Facebook groups and then get tons of <laughs> conflicting answers and then your brand is you know, compromised. And then, and then you have a Frankenstein agreement. And uh, <laughs> I, I want to yeah. say this one thing that you know I heard from a, a very uh, successful client of ours and, and also a very good friend. He said, if you wait until you're ready, then it's already too late. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to end episode one, and I'm hoping that you can stick around for episode two because I think there's more that we have for the people. It's a lot more. There's so much more. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do, I want to thank you for being on this episode of the AdCast. We're going to be respectful of our listeners' time and go ahead and end it here, and hopefully they can tune in next week to the next episode that we have on the AdCast. So for all of you, thank you for giving us your most valuable asset, your time, and also we would love for you to be able to subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and make sure you tell your friends about the AdCast and give us a great rating. A one star is cool, but a five star is even better. This is the AdCast. (laughs) Copyright VIP Marketing and Advertising. Produced by Craft Creative. When all eyes are on you, make it count. From audio to video to graphic design and more, Craft Creative can do it all. We don't make commercials. We craft creative. See what we can do for you at WeCraftCreative.com.